0: Well, good day and welcome to yet another holiday edition of the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name is Matt, and this has been prepared for January 15, the start of 2023. Uh, let me read a sentence of scripture to begin our time together from Matthew chapter three. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. And alighting him and lo a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased well it's only on account of this beloved son that Jesus who is risen and ascended for us that we can gather for whom we can hear his word and so we begin our time now with a time of praise as we come to look at God's word. Heavenly Father, almighty and eternal God, when the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan, you revealed him to be your own beloved Son. And Father, we pray now that you would keep us, your children, born of water and the Spirit, faithful to our calling. We ask this through the Lord Jesus, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, we come to our Bible readings, which start in the Old Testament, beginning in Ezekiel, and it's chapter 36, verses 25 to 28. Our psalm is number 51, verses 7 through to 12. And our New Testament reading is John chapter 3, verses 1 through to 21. So New Testament, John 3, 1 through to 21. Pause the video for a moment now, have a read of those, and we'll come back and think think this through together. Let's pray for ourselves now. Heavenly Father, we simply ask now that as we look at your word, that you would guide us through it and help us see what you want us to see. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that my wife loves, it's a good story about birth. I can't tell you how many times uh, through our time at college that we, we had friends over for dinner, we will hang out with people, and the conversation eventually turned to the topic of birth. And my wife is fascinated with it. And she wanted to hear their stories and their experiences of their own births. Now, for me, I'm not so keen on the topic, uh, but it's hard to deny. And in fact, I don't think it's too wrong to say that birth in itself is miraculous for those that are able. There's something extraordinary about it. And in fact, we heard about birth in in our Bible passage today in John 3. Jesus talked about it. In fact, he talked about a new kind of birth. He talked about being born again. And now, born again is a term that's sometimes thrown around Christian circles. Uh, people can take it to mean different things. And I'm not sure where you're at with it. I'm not sure what you make of it, what your questions are perhaps. But today, we're going to spend a moment thinking about this statement from Jesus, that you need to be born again. Now, <clears throat> this morning, we going to spend time uh, looking at that. And as a bit of context, first of all, last week, uh, if you were with us, Uh, It's great that you're back again. Last week, we looked at John chapter 2. Jesus turned water to wine at the Cana wedding. He then cleared out the temple. And as a result of that, we see in verse 23 of John 2 that people began believing in his name. But look at verse 24 with me if you've got it in front of you. John 2 verse 24. Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. Jesus, Jesus could tell that These people who were seemingly impressed by him were not genuine believers. And so for us, this raises kind of the question then, coming out of the back of John 2, what does it look like to be genuinely with Jesus? Well, that's where we're going today. And so come with me into chapter 3. We start in verse 1. John, the author, tells us, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him Now back then according to the Jewish community that if anyone was worthy to be right with God it was the kind of people like Nicodemus right he was a Pharisee he was a Jewish elite he was part of the ruling class he he was a teacher of God's word but here he comes to Jesus at night. I mean, perhaps he doesn't want anyone to see him associated with Jesus. Perhaps it's an indication of his true spiritual, uh, spiritual condition. But Nicodemus here he asks Jesus kind of a question without asking him a question. He makes a comment about Jesus and then he doesn't in a way that invites a reply. He says, in a kind of a way that looks like he's speaking on behalf of the rest of the Pharisees. He says, "We know these things about you, Jesus. We know these things about you." The basic invitation is, please explain who you are and what you're doing. Now, Jesus replies in verse 3, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, they thought that they were God's people. If anyone got to heaven, it's them, right? But Jesus here, he offers a qualification. He says, no, no, no. No one can enter heaven. No one can be right with God. Not even Nicodemus. Unless you are born again. And so the first thing we see as we begin to read this is that this idea of being born again, it's not some you know, adding to the Christian life. It's not just for some. No, this is a fundam- fundamental part of what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus. You can only be a Christian if you are born again. And if you are a Christian, that means you are born again. Now, at this point, some of you, like Nicodemus, might be confused. And he says to Jesus, it doesn't work like that. You can't be born again. You're only born once. And to think otherwise, it's a bit of a scary thought, right? But Jesus answers him in verse 5. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Now, Reading this for a while, I thought that Jesus is talking about two different births, to be born, one you know, one of natural birth, water, like amniotic fluid, born in a hospital, and then to be born of the spirit is something different again. But on reflection, I think he's actually talking about the same thing here. To be, I mean, the reason I think that is, first of all, because back then in the first century, they didn't associate natural birth with water like kind of we do sometimes today. But secondly, and more importantly, I want you to come back with me to where our Old Testament reading is. right? Ezekiel chapter 36. Because here we see that, well, while the Israelites are in exile, while they're scattered among the nations, they've rejected God, they've defiled the land, and they've profaned God's name, God makes this promise to them. He says in Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Then he says, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so here, written 500 years before Jesus is even around, here we have this promise that links together water and spirit. And the water imagery picks up up on this idea of uh, of cleansing. A cleansing that the spirit does in someone's life. And when God does this water and spirit washing of you, then you have a new heart. That's what he says. Your heart will be changed. What this is describing is is a transformation right down at our deepest level. And it's not something we do for ourselves. Now, Ezekiel tells us this is something that God needs to do for us. Before we can even put our faith in him, we need God to regenerate our hearts. This is God's part in our salvation. And it's a necessary prerequisite for anyone to come to faith in him. We are totally incapable of coming to Jesus on our own because we are so depraved, so entrenched in sin. And that's why somewhere like Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that even our faith, is a gift of God. The faith is only possible if we are born again, if we are regenerated by God's Spirit as we are washed with it. Well then, in verse 8, Jesus goes on to speak about the wind blowing and he kind of links that with the life of someone who is born again. And on a first read, it can seem a little bit confusing and what's the connection he's trying to make, but simply the point is this, that Jesus is making. Just like the wind the Spirit of God is a little bit mysterious in how it operates. We don't fully comprehend it. But also, just like the wind, the effect of the Spirit on a person's life, it's noticeable and unmistakable. Being born again is a change that God does deep down inside of us, and it's a change that we'll actually see have a, have a ripple effect on the surface. Now, for you, perhaps... Perhaps you've seen that in your own life as you've come to Jesus at some point. You've seen the way that that's affected your decisions, your actions, the way that you think, the way that you now live. Perhaps, whether you're a Christian or not, you've seen this in someone else's life. Maybe the person who brought you here to watch this video. Maybe you've seen it affect their decisions. You've seen this change and this evidence of the spirit is actually an outworking of the the radical change that God does in someone's heart. And it's that radical change that, again, is a prerequisite for anyone to first come to him in faith. And at this point in the conversation, Jesus turns it from God's part in our salvation to the necessary fruit, the response, which is our response of faith. And so not only does being a genuine follower of Jesus mean that we need a radical change, a new birth, but as we get to verses 9 to 15, we also see here That to be a genuine follower of Jesus, we also need to listen to him and to trust in him. And so, here Nicodemus, after hearing about the necessity for being born again, he says in verse 9, he's a bit clueless, how can this be? And Jesus rebukes him. Just like in verse 7 when Jesus said, don't be surprised at me saying this, you shouldn't be. Here in verse 10 he says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Right? It's like being a maths teacher and not getting how trigonometry works. Right? He says, your job is to literally read and teach the word of God. How do you not get it? And so a little point of application here for us. As people who have God's word in our hands so readily available, could this charge that Jesus lays of Nicodemus, of not reading God's word carefully enough to see his plan of salvation all the way through, is that a charge that could be laid against us? Now, I'll put my hand up and say, I'm the first person who who needs to to hear that rebuke, who needs to be challenged that I don't spend enough time with the whole counsel of God. I need to be better at that. But I'm also sure that I'm not the only one in that category. Well, after rebuking him, Jesus then goes on in verse 11 to echo the the we and the you that Nicodemus uses back in verse 2 himself. And as he does, he says that, There's actually something worse than than failing to understand how the Old Testament fits together. the worst thing for Nicodemus, the worst thing for the Pharisees, is that they are failing to believe the words of Jesus himself. And so he says in verse 12, what I'm talking to you about, these are earthly things. This is the basic stuff. I mean, how can I go on talking to you about the heavenly realities if you haven't even grasped this new birth that's needed to be in heaven in the first place? And, if there's any doubt why Jesus has authority to to speak about heavenly things, it's because verse 13, heaven is his home. That's John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the eternal son. He has authority to talk. He's the only one who has authority to talk about eternal things so these verses they're about our need to trust in the words that jesus speaks himself but also about our need to trust jesus and so he goes on to illustrate the character of that trust in verse 14 and you can see it there now the story in the old testament that he's pointing to is one from numbers chapter 21 right it's a story where the israelites they're out of egypt they're not yet in the promised land they're in the wilderness and they're they're turning their backs on god they're grumbling they're saying, God, this food you give, you've given us is rubbish. You're rubbish. You brought us out here to die. We want to do things our way. We know better. And no doubt it's a pretty serious attitude to have towards God. But as we think about it, it's probably not too dissimilar from the way that anyone acts towards God before being regenerated by the power of his spirit. And they've had the Israelites. The punishment for their sin, this sin we see, their rejection, Numbers 21, verse 6. The punishment is, The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Please pray to the Lord that he will take these snakes away from us. And so, verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole so that anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so that's what happens, they do that. And as we think about that story, back then the Israelites they needed to look to the bronze snake that was kind of lifted up and see the justice of God's punishment. They needed to recognize that there is a punishment for sin. And while after calling out to God, he didn't immediately kind of just wipe away the consequences. He didn't wipe away the snakes. He did provide a solution to their problems. He did provide a means of mercy so that those who were bitten by the snakes, those who were essentially dead men walking, could be given a new physical life. And so, for Nicodemus, for us as we read this, there shouldn't be too strange a thought in our minds to think that the God who gave them new physical life would now also provide a way for us to have new spiritual and eternal life with him. Now it's not by looking at a bronze snake, though, that's lifted up, but by looking to his son, who was lifted up to die on, the, on a wooden cross for us. Now, for the Israelites, they could have occupied themselves with trying to find a cure for the snake venom. They could have done that. But instead, by God's grace, the means of life was simply by looking and trusting in his provision for them. And that's the point of comparison that Jesus is making here. There's nothing that we can do to fix our problem of sin before God like there was nothing they could do to fix the venom problem. The only way that we can find eternal life is by looking to and trusting in the work of Jesus who was lifted up on the cross for you and me. And as we've already seen, this is something that we are able to do, that, that looking, that believing, is something we can only do once we are born again, once God regenerates our hearts. Well, as we get to the last section now, we begin with what is easily, for many, the most familiar verse of all Scripture, John chapter three, verse 16. It tells us why anyone can look to the sun and find life. It tells us the motive. And it tells us the means. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The motive? The motive is God's love. For God so loved the world. Now, for John, the author, whenever he talks about the world, he's not talking about kind of just this big blob we're on, but he's talking about, specifically about People living in active rejection and rebellion against God. And so when we read this, that God loved the world, we shouldn't see this as a comment on how lovable we are, but a comment on the immense and radical love of our God. That he would love us even when we are not lovely. In fact, when we are unlovable. The motive is this vast, bottomless sea of God. And so he provides a means. The means is the, de- the death of Jesus in our place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When John here says that God gave his one and only son, he means that he gave him up on the cross for us. Jesus willingly went to die in our place to satisfy the justice of God that we deserve. And as the only one to ever live a life of perfect obedience and love before God, and as the only one who can claim to have all the full, infinite dignity of our God, His death is the only death that can satisfy the justice of God for us. It's the only thing that can secure for us forgiveness and eternal life. And the way that we grasp hold of that is by faith, is by believing in Him. Now, For us, if we don't see our rejection of a God of infinite dignity as something that that is the truest of evils, deserving of eternal punishment, then we don't have a high enough view of God and a grave enough view of our own sin. And see Jesus going to the cross for us. It's him taking on God's wrath that we deserve. And so God's love is not just radical, but it's selfless. It's costly. And so a question that each of us needs to, at the very beginning, answer then is, how do we respond to seeing this radical love God has for us? Well, in the end of this verse here, he tells us that all people can basically fall into two categories. They're either those who have eternal life with the Son, or those who will perish that means beyond this life they'll experience eternity separated from the life-giving presence of god it's an eternity in hell that's a just consequence of rejecting him and the reality is for us we don't need to wait to to find out the verdict that all humanity are under now verse 17 and 18 tell us that all people by default are in need of saving right because our sin our sin means that we stand condemned already before god and then verse 19 this is the verdict light has come into the world but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil and so jesus he didn't come into a neutral world he came as a light into a world of darkness and so the primary reason why people in our community don't look to the risen up jesus it's not primarily because they doubt the truth of Christianity, but because they love themselves. It's because they want to do their thing, because they love materialism, because they love pursuing pleasure. And they reject the light, because when it shines on them, it actually shows the, the darkness of their own hearts before a holy God. The light is confronting. And in fact, it's not just people who are out there. This is us as well. It's you, and it's me. Because even as people who maybe are regenerated by the work of washing of God's spirit, while we still live this side of heaven, in a fallen and broken world, we still battle away with our own desires toward darkness. And so tell me if this sounds familiar. When I sinned, when I've done the wrong thing before God, when I'm not living in a, in a wise or godly way, I don't want to look at Jesus. I don't want to bring myself into the light. I want to look the other way. I want to hide from him because the light is confronting. When I haven't done away with sin in my life, the last thing I want to do is go to church. The last thing I want to do is to read my Bible and look at Jesus in the face because his light exposes the darkness of my own actions. And I know that as I say that, I'm not alone with that. Perhaps you resonate with that as well. When we don't do away with sin, it's uncomfortable for us to fix our eyes on our Saviour. But equally, being a part of different churches, what I usually see is that when people have dealt with their sin, usually I find that they do want to come into the light. They do want to be at church. They do want to look at Jesus. Because in him, we not only see the seriousness of our own sin and the grave thing it is to refuse to know him, but when we look at Jesus, we are constantly reminded of the tremendous love God has for us. It's a love that means we can leave our sin at the foot of the cross and know that it's dealt with. And know that when we do that, we find forgiveness. We have new life with him. And it gives us confidence then to turn and start living by the truth. To live in the light. And it's a love that's its not simply general. its It's definitely not detached. But it's a love which is personal. A love which means that you and I can read John 3.16 this way. That God so loved me that he gave his one and only son. That when I believe in him, I know I won't perish, but have eternal life. That is the confidence that a genuine follower of Jesus has. A genuine follower of Jesus can read John 3.16 in that way. You can read John 3.16 in that way. And being a follower, being a genuine follower of Jesus, we know it's not about how long you've been at church or how regular you are at church or even which church you associate with. No, being a genuine follower of Jesus, the question is, have you been born again? Have you been washed by God's Spirit? And are you now looking to the Son in faith, the one who is lifted up for you? If that's you, And I want to keep encouraging you to keep looking to Jesus, to keep living in the light, keep letting it transform your life. And I want to finish by encouraging you with this question. What does it mean for you today to know this real, this radical and life-transforming love of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that when we open your word, we see you clearly. We see ourselves in a desperate need of you clearly. And Father, help us to be people who while we wrestle with sometimes hard doctrinal issues are content to know that you are good, that you have a good plan for us and that you have a deep, a vast sea of love with which you consume us, with which, with which you call us back to yourself. Father, help us, hearing that call, to give our lives fully to Jesus and to live as people who have been called into the light, not hiding our deeds, but bringing them before you, knowing that we have forgiveness. Father, do this work in our lives. By your spirit, we pray. Amen. we continue now in a further time of praise?
1: i Shepherd may I see
0: Well, friends as we go i want you to hold on to the fact the knowledge that god has a deep and radical love for you that he's shown you through sending his son to die to be lifted up so that we can have new life our uh, friends go on that knowledge be living in the light and be trusting in him giving him the glory see you next time